Act One A fine morning in October, 1894, in the northeast quarter of London, a vast district away from the London of Mayfair and St. James, and much less narrow, squalid, fetid, and airless in its slums. It is strong in unfashionable middle-class life, wide-streeted, myriad-populated, well-served with ugly iron urinals, radical clubs, and tram lines carrying a perpetual stream of yellow cars, enjoying in its main thoroughfares the luxury of grass-grown front gardens, untrodden by the foot of man save as to the path from the gate to the hall door, blighted by a callously endured monotony of miles and miles of unlovely brick houses, black iron railings, stony pavements, slated roofs, and respectably ill-dressed or disreputably worse-dressed people, quite accustomed to the place, and mostly plodding uninterestedly about somebody else's work. The little energy and eagerness that crop up show themselves in cockney cupidity and business push. Even the policemen and the chapels are not infrequent enough to break the monotony. The sun is shining cheerfully, there is no fog, and though the smoke effectually prevents anything, whether faces and hands or bricks and mortar, from looking fresh and clean, it is not hanging heavily enough to trouble a Londoner. This desert of unattractiveness has its oasis. Near the outer end of the Hackney Road is a park of 217 acres, fenced in not by railings, but by a wooden paling, and containing plenty of greensward, trees, a lake for bathers, flower beds which are triumphs of the admired cockney art of carpet gardening, and a sand pit, originally imported from the seaside for the delight of children, but speedily deserted on its becoming a natural vermin preserve for all the petty fauna of Kingsland, Hackney, and Hoxton. A bandstand, an unfurnished forum for religious, anti-religious, and political orators, cricket pitches, a gymnasium, and an old-fashioned stone kiosk are among its attractions— Wherever the prospect is bounded by trees or rising green grounds, it is a pleasant place. Where the ground stretches flat to the grey palings with bricks and mortar, sky signs, crowded chimneys and smoke beyond, the prospect makes it desolate and sordid. The best view of Victoria Park is commanded by the front window of St. Dominic's Parsonage, from which not a brick is visible. The parsonage is semi-detached, with a front garden and a porch. Visitors go up the flight of steps to the porch. Tradespeople and members of the family go down by a door under the steps to the basement, with a breakfast room, used for all meals, in front, and the kitchen at the back. Upstairs, on the level of the hall door, is the drawing room, with its large plate glass window looking out on the park. In this, the only sitting room that can be spared from the children and the family meals, the parson, the Reverend James Maver Morell, does his work. He is sitting in a strong, round-backed revolving chair at the end of a long table, which stands across the window, so that he can cheer himself with a view of the park over his left shoulder. At the opposite end of the table adjoining it is a little table only half as wide as the other with a typewriter on it. His typist is sitting at this machine with her back to the window. The large table is littered with pamphlets, journals, letters, nests of drawers, an office diary, postage scales, and the like. A spare chair for visitors having business with the parson is in the middle, turned to his end. Within reach of his hand is a stationary case and a photograph in a frame. The wall behind him is fitted with bookshelves, on which an adept eye can measure the parson's casuistry and divinity by Maurice's theological essays and a complete set of Browning's poems, and the reformer's politics by a yellow-backed progress and poverty, Fabian essays, a dream of John Ball, 
Marx's Capital, and half a dozen other literary landmarks in socialism. Facing him on the other side of the room near the typewriter is the door. Further down, opposite the fireplace, a bookcase stands on a cellaret with a sofa near it. There is a generous fire burning, and the hearth with a comfortable armchair and a black japanned flower-painted coal scuttle at one side, a miniature chair for children on the other, a varnished wooden mantelpiece with neatly molded shelves, tiny bits of mirror let into the panels, a traveling clock in a leather case, the inevitable wedding present, and on the wall above a large autotype of the chief figure in Titian's Assumption of the Virgin is very inviting. Altogether the room is the room of a good housekeeper, vanquished, as far as the table is concerned, by an untidy man, but elsewhere mistress of the situation.